0: Well, it was the day after the Sabbath, very early on Sunday morning, before the sun's first rays had touched the deep, the deep black sky. Mary Magdalene had been unable to sleep that night. In fact, she hadn't really slept since her Lord was killed on Friday. Friday, was it really the third day after his death already? She couldn't imagine a world without Jesus in it, the man who had completely changed her life. And yet, here was that world. She dressed and left to visit Jesus' tomb, thinking to see again where he was laid. And as she entered the garden and approached the hillside where the tomb was, she saw in the darkness that the pale-coloured stone which had covered the tomb's entrance had moved. The tomb's black mouth yawned open. Who'd done this? Grave robbers? men sent by the Jewish leaders to further desecrate his remains. She didn't dare go closer. What would such men do to a woman alone in the dark? Or frantic and almost choking with fear, she ran to find Peter and John, telling them what she'd seen. And they listened wide-eyed, then headed for the tomb while Mary followed more slowly, exhausted from the strain of her first run. Well, Peter and John had left the garden before she arrived, perhaps to report what had happened. Uh, But now that the sun had risen and she could see that there was no movement from the tomb, she cautiously approached. The tears started to fall like they hadn't before. Now that there was no physical body to mourn over, her grief had become more physical, more tangible. Her vision blurred by tears at first. She didn't believe it when she looked into the tomb and saw two people, or what looked a little like people, dressed in white, sitting on the low ledge where Jesus' body had been. Woman, why are you crying? Their voices were gentle. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Well, let's pause here. A moment of great despair, without hope. Mary and the other disciples thought that things couldn't get any darker. We've all been awake at that time of the night, haven't we? Maybe because you couldn't sleep, or with a new baby, or a sick child. That time of the night, which feels like the darkest part, when it feels like the sun will never rise, that a new day is never gonna come. Mary had lost her Lord, her teacher and savior in a sudden and horrific way. She'd seen the tomb where he was hastily buried just before the Sabbath day started when no work was allowed to be done. And now just to add insult to injury, it seems that his body has been stolen. She wouldn't even have the opportunity to perform the traditional preparations for a dead body, cleaning and anointing with spices and oil. Can you imagine a moment with less hope in it? I'm sure some of us can, and that's why Mary's story is so powerful. We know what it feels like to be hopeless. We've had times in life, for some of us, perhaps significant times, when we haven't been able to see a way forward in the pitch black night. And when we look at the state of the world, we can struggle to find any reason for hope there either. COVID continues to upset our lives and have devastating impacts on the, on the vulnerable. We're headed towards another election and our politicians apparently care about image and re-election more than good policy and compassion. Putin commits war crimes against the Ukrainian people while the rest of the world looks on and fears the start of World War III we see the statistics that in Australia, on average, one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner. This world doesn't give us much reason for hope. And as we come to Easter Sunday, a day when we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, it can be hard to feel any hope. When our experience of life is so dark, what place does hope have? A life of hope seems like a mystery that we can't solve. Is there hope? Is there anywhere in our lives in this world where we can find hope? Well, I think we're offered some answers by the events of that first Easter Sunday and by the Apostle Paul's words in our reading from 1 Corinthians 15. So let me pray for us as we explore God's word together. Lord Jesus, you know what is in the depths of our hearts. Nothing is hidden from you. We bring to you our hopelessness, our doubts, our anger, and trust you for hope and healing. Amen. Well 1 Corinthians 15 is right at the end of the Apostle Paul's first letters to the first letter to the church in Corinth. In the letter, Paul writes to a group of Christians. Who were to be honest pretty messed up. In this church there was incest, sleeping with prostitutes, lawsuits between church members and on top of all of that there was disunity and strife as individuals tried to assert their own importance. You could easily have looked at this group of people and thought that they were pretty hopeless. And yet Paul calls them his brothers and sisters and includes them in the glorious promises Of chapter 15. Uh, The chapter starts with Paul reminding the Corinthians of what they believe. Uh, Julie, could you scroll forward a few to the first little words? Thank you. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. you might notice that Paul doesn't mention Mary Magdalene as the first person Jesus appeared to after his resurrection, like we just read about in John's Gospel. Uh, But Paul here isn't really giving a historical reconstruction of events. Uh, He's more just briefly referring to facts that he assumes the Corinthians already know. Effectively he's saying this is the gospel you know and you believe. Jesus lived, died and rose again and this was in fulfilment of God's promises throughout the scriptures. Uh, Jesus' resurrection is the subject of the rest of the chapter and as we get to verse 50 Paul spells out the consequences of Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, those who follow Jesus will also rise from the dead. And so we have hope, real hope. Not the kind of hope that's unattainable or denies reality, but hope based on the certain future we have. In Jesus. Uh, So first let me read verses 50 to 53 in which we're assured of the reality of hope. I declare to you brothers and sisters that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen I tell you a mystery we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Paul begins by confidently declaring to the Corinthian church that flesh and blood, what is perishable, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, what is imperishable. We might sometimes think that we're invincible or we'll live forever, but sometimes I think all it takes is a bad night's sleep to remind us we're only human. Human life is transient. Each day we're slowly perishing. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? And Paul points out that what is perishable, what only lasts a short time, doesn't fit with what is imperishable, what lasts forever. Uh, Imagine you've made the decision to renovate your home. You're planning to put a second level on, uh, with extra bedrooms and a bathroom, perhaps even a rooftop terrace, just to get fancy. Uh, But this renovation is gonna be entirely pointless if your home is a tent. You can't put a second story on a tent. It's just too flimsy and temporary. The whole thing's gonna collapse. It's really only appropriate to start renovations if you have a house with foundations and walls. It's not appropriate for what is perishable and temporary to take part in what is imperishable and eternal. It's just not gonna work. And so Paul explains a mystery. He explains the mystery of how humanity, weak and transient, can take part in God's eternal kingdom. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Paul looks forward to the final day, the day when the resurrected Jesus, who's currently in heaven, will return. Some will have died by the time this happens, uh, we now know, including Paul and everyone he wrote to in Corinth. But Paul's use of the phrase fallen asleep Uh, is more than just a euphemism. It perfectly suits the situation because the death of those who follow Jesus is as temporary and peaceful as sleep. However, there will be some people who see Jesus return before they die. That could be us. Like Paul, we've got no idea when Jesus will return. But whatever the timing, we know that all believers, dead and alive, will be changed suddenly, instantaneously, at the last trumpet. The sound of the trumpet is a common image used in the Bible to depict the last day, which reflects the ancient practice of trumpets heralding the arrival of royalty, of a king. And in that split second moment, when the king arrives, we will be clothed in imperishability, immortality. Because in order to participate in God's real, physical, eternal Kingdom, we need to have bodies fit for purpose. I think it's uh, pretty common in our culture and maybe even in our own minds to think that heaven's going to be this odd spirit world of clouds and harps and we'll be drifting around in some sort of disembodied state, but that's not at all what God says in the Bible. In fact, when Jesus returns, we're told he'll bring a new creation. Heaven will come to earth, and both will be remade, perfect and eternal. And to be a part of this glorious future will be embodied. And not with exactly the same bodies we have now, we'll be different, but recognisable, like Jesus was in his resurrection body. In the garden at first, we read that Mary Magdalene didn't know it was Jesus. He was different somehow, but when he said her name, she knew who he was. Elsewhere in the gospels, Jesus eats, he prepares a fish barbecue on the beach, and he walks and talks with his friends. But he also appears and disappears through walls. He's physical and solid, but the limitations of this decaying creation don't seem to apply to him anymore. Perhaps this world is just too flimsy to contain his new imperishable body. Uh, If you've ever read the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, the end of the final book, The Last Battle, I think helps us to imagine what the new creation and what our new bodies might be like. The main characters have left behind the old Narnia and as they enter into a new world, they discover it's a lot more familiar than they first realised. Now, let me read a part of it. Lucy said, those hills, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why they are exactly like? And yet, said Lucy, they're different. They have more colours on them and they look further away than I remembered. And they're more, more like the real thing. The narrator goes on and says, the new country was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. And It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. As the characters continue to explore the new Narnia, they discovered that all their senses are stronger as well. It's like everything in the old Narnia, in their old lives, was merely a shadow or a copy of this new, better world. Although the Bible doesn't spell out exactly what the new creation will be like, what our resurrected bodies will be like, we have enough, enough for real hope. We'll be physical, we'll still be ourselves with our own thoughts and emotions, but everyone and everything in the new creation will be better, more like the real thing, you might say. And that's what God gives us in 1 Corinthians 15, God assures us of the reality of hope. Well, secondly, in verses 54 to 57, we're invited to celebrate the victory of hope. Our Paul goes on, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, it's a few slides on. One more, a few more. There we go. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' return and the clothing of our mortal bodies with immortality, this isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Paul refers to the event of Jesus' return and our resurrection as completely certain. Uh, There's an old joke that goes, nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. That's rubbish. Not even death is certain. But Jesus' return, 100% certain. Our clothing with immortality so that we're part of the new embodied creation, 100% certain. The certainty of our resurrection is also underlined by Paul because he quotes from two Old Testament passages uh, in Isaiah and Hosea, the bits in quotation marks, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus' coming fulfilled all the scriptures, but this is actually the only time Paul refers to an Old Testament passage which has not yet been fulfilled by Jesus. Not yet. Because Jesus' life, death and resurrection are the guarantee that this promise also will be fulfilled. Since Jesus has risen from the dead, it's a sure thing that we also will rise from the dead. And so Paul taunts death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus has already defeated sin in his own death and he's defeated death in his resurrection. And when God's people are given resurrected bodies, bodies that will never degrade or die, then death's power will finally be obliterated forever. This is the amazing truth of Easter. This is the mystery of Easter. It's not a mystery that we can solve by ourselves. It's not a truth that we can understand on our own. That's a mystery that's revealed only by God. Only when we bring our weakness and our hopelessness to Jesus can he show us the reality and victory of hope in him. As Paul says, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps uh, this sounds maybe all a bit abstract, but the concrete truth of the gospel is that if you trust and follow Jesus, you have real victorious hope. A hope for a future that is perfect and physical, better and more real than anything you'll experience in this life. Uh, Lots of people spend their time and effort trying to squeeze the best out of life. For some, that looks like gaining prestige and power or money and possessions. And for others, they might focus on gaining experiences and making memories. Most of us, I'm sure, have some sort of a bucket list, a list of the things that we want to do before we kick the bucket. We're desperate to experience life to the full. We don't want to miss out on any opportunity. But friends, the good news is that a future with the Lord Jesus Christ means you never have to worry about missing out. In God's kingdom, the new creation will have every opportunity to experience the goodness and perfection of life for eternity. The best that we enjoy here, great food, relationships, culture, experiences, all of this is only a weak taste of what we'll have in the new creation. Because we'll live with Jesus who is the source of all joy. And so as God assures us of the reality of hope and invites us to celebrate the victory of hope, we're empowered for a life of hope. Uh, Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Knowing the reality and victory of hope A mystery which was hidden but has now been revealed in Jesus. We can live this life confidently and abundantly. That's what hope gives us. Hope empowers us to live confidently and abundantly. Of course, if we look at the state of things around us, if we try to find hope in a world that's perishing, we'll end up without hope. But if we remember that this world will be renewed, that God will make it new and perfect, then we can live with hope now. And as we love others and serve Jesus, this verse tells us something amazing. Our labor in Jesus is not in vain. The work that we do for God, whether that work is visiting someone in hospital, washing nappies, telling a friend about Jesus, driving a bus, giving money to the needy, performing brain surgery, advocating for the environment. Whatever our work is, it's not for nothing. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that what we do in this physical world is of infinite worth. Somehow there is continuity between the work we do in this life and what will exist in the new creation. When we labor for Christ in any part of our lives, that labor will have consequences for eternity. This Easter, as we worship with Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb, let's celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus, that in Jesus and because of his resurrection, we also will be resurrected. This is real hope, hope that's victorious, and therefore we can live with hope now because our lives have eternal significance. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, let's stand and sing now to Jesus, the source of all our hope.